Welcome to this edition of Rail Group on Air, the podcast series brought to you by Railway Age, Railway Track and Structures, and International Railway Journal. I'm William C. Vantuono, Editor-in-Chief of Railway Age. Today, we will discuss the recently released change management book, Change Questions, by noted executive D. Lynn Kelly, Ph.D., with prominent internationally known lean management expert John Shook. The pace of organizational change has been increasing. Unfortunately, most change activities fail to deliver anticipated results, and those that do often fail to sustain. The Change Questions book addresses these critical issues by providing a proven process with a strong record of sustainment that can be used by anyone responsible for implementing organizational change. The book includes a case study with examples and stories of transformation at Union Pacific Railroad over eight years. At Union Pacific, using the change questions resulted in a dramatic increase in operational performance and a 96% sustainment rate over hundreds of change initiatives. Lance Fritz, the former chairman, CEO, and president of Union Pacific said, Change questions came to life for me when I saw their power to transform our daily grind, improvement driven by the individuals doing the work. So we have two guests to discuss the book, Change Questions. We have the author, Lynn Kelly, and we have contributing editor, Sonia Bott, the chief executive of the Bott Consulting Group Incorporated, which I'm sure you will recognize from her publications and podcasts with Railway Age. So uh, welcome to you both. Uh, Before we dive into the main discussion, how about you tell us about yourselves? Uh, Lynn, why don't you go first? I will. Thank you. Well, you mentioned that the case study was at Union Pacific Railroad over eight years, and that's because I worked there and I retired from there a few years ago. I was senior vice president of supply chain and continuous improvement. Now that I'm retired from Union Pacific Railroad, I work for Brown Brothers Harriman outside of New York City in their private equity group, advising them on railroad investments and also manufacturing. Because in my job before Union Pacific, I spent most of my career in manufacturing. I worked at Textron. Most of you have not heard of Textron, but you certainly know the companies that Textron owns, such as Bell Helicopters, Cessna Aircraft, EasyGo Golf Cars, Automotive Industry Supplier, Fuel Systems, Mining Industry, lots of different industries. And I reported to the chairman and CEO and worked over the 32 different countries in our hundreds of manufacturing facilities, helping to implement operational excellence. And that's where the change questions got their start. Uh, I have a PhD in evaluation and research, and I taught statistics for a number of years. And prior to academia, I was an executive vice president at a small hospital in Detroit. So in in essence, I've guided organizations through change management, through leadership roles in supply chain, manufacturing, engineering, and continuous improvement across diverse industries at a global scale. All right. Thank you, Lynn. Sonia, your turn. Tell us about yourself. I've played key roles in creating several strategic new businesses within corporations, as well as leading and guiding complex transformations worldwide. I've seen a lot. I've navigated through downsizing, right-sizing, deregulations, SEC investments, economic downturns, heydays, and scale-ups. 
uh, let alone um, work through one of the largest and very high profile um, global corporate bankruptcies in the world. I love doing innovation and I have hands-on experience in dealing with operational issues for all the key functional areas in a corporation, its customers, its suppliers, the regulators, the whole ecosystem. I focus on issues that include the more difficult decision-making or issues where previous attempts by others have failed. And it's really important to me that I enable organizations to deliver breakthrough results, along with providing them a foundation to continue to excel as the company and the world continue to evolve. Like Lynn, I too draw from practical methodologies. Uh, for me, it includes entrepreneurship, business precision, systems engineering, organizational behavior, and Lean Six Sigma. I'm a certified Lean Six Sigma Master Black Belt, and I did that to become a better leader. And I evolve and customize these methodologies as business models, technology, and external dynamics of the world keep evolving. All right, thank you very much, Sonia. I'd like to turn it over to you now and Lynn. Okay, Bill. So, so Lynn, to start, let's acknowledge that there's lots out there on the topic of change, even dating back centuries like Machiavelli in the early 1500s, as you mentioned in your book. Now, some material is really good, and some is, quite frankly, limited. So I have to ask, <laughs> what do you see as the unique value that your book and your change questions methodology offer? Oh, that's a really good question because there is so much out there and you're right. Uh, I have probably read most of it because what I did is every time I failed, I would seek out what did I do wrong? What can I do differently? And there are, as you said, tons of good methodologies out there. And what makes this unique is that every other methodology that I have seen has a step-by-step -step process. And my feeling is no two changes are the same. Every every one is different. So the methodology should be able to ebb and flow and adjust to your own specific need. And that's why taking the idea of approach of questions lets everyone review these questions and decide what's appropriate for them and their change. And they end up with a customized approach for their change. That's the first thing. The second thing is this fabulous case study at Union Pacific Railroad. It was so much, I loved working there. And there are lots of good stories about the railroad and the people in the railroad. And um, I hope every reader comes away with a new admiration for the railroad. And finally, uh, it's accompanied, the book is accompanied by a digital workbook that's free, and we'll give you information later on how to get that, but it's so that you can do this whole change questions process digitally, which was really helpful in this age of working on Zoom calls, and I especially liked it. I started using it digitally years ago when I was working in those 32 different countries. Those are really good points that you make, Lynn. And it's really, really so true that no two change initiatives are alike. Uh, nuances are important factors. Now, um, you mentioned that your case studies, and you also get very specific about it within your book, 
that um, what you've got that you've done at Union Pacific and what makes your um, the change um, questions methodology really powerful um, is when you apply to what I would call more um, initiatives that are in the more complex category. So for example, uh, uh, railroads are an entrenched industry, right? Uh, right? And, you know, there's some beauty to the entrenchment, but, you know, railroads need to keep moving forward, right? Because there are um, new entrant competitors coming as an example, right? But there's also extensive union involvement. And, you know, there's a skill and an art in terms of how to deal effectively with all different um, parts uh, of a railroad or that type of environment. And generally speaking, you can also say the same about complexity when you factor into your change initiative any external um, parties to an organization or other legal entities that are external that come into your change initiative. For example, like, you know, external business partners, suppliers, regulators, and customers. You're right, Sonia. And introducing those customers, those other entities, and the union does add a layer of complexity, as you mentioned. Yes. Yeah. And so uh, one of the things, Lynn, that I more than too often hear is that 60 to 70% of change efforts fail. Studies keep reporting this, and leaders and organizations that approach me um, you know, they tell me their horror stories along these lines. And in my experience in leading complex change initiatives, and again, ac across many industries and organizations worldwide, you know, international proportions similar to you, Lynn, including railroading, uh, is that it doesn't have to be that way. Um, there is a way of systematically getting into that 30 to 40% success zone and more so achieving sustainable change. That's change that sticks. So Lynn, you've also experienced sustainable change. How about you tell us uh, and give us some examples that you've come across in various industries and in railroading? I love that you brought up that failure rate. I mean, I hate that it's there, but I love that you brought it up because so often we implement change as if Failure is not an option. Or if we mention failure, it will jinx it. Rather than proactively recognizing that the probability is it will fail unless we systematically approach the change like you said. So my first failure came with my first international assignment. I was transferred to, in the automotive industry, I was transferred to France uh, to work in France and Germany in um, dozens of manufacturing facilities to figure out how to implement change that their customers wanted, but they didn't know exactly how to do. And I got to tell you, I failed miserably. I mean, Germany was not as bad. France was dismal. And um, for the life of me, I just really tried so many different things, but I kept going back to the research. And that's when I also discovered the statistic that you said that basically you <laughs> 30%, you're lucky if you hit 30 to 40% success rate. Um, so that's how the change questions got to be developed through all of my various failures. And I may even be able to mention a couple more of them today, but I steadily added these questions to ask myself before any change initiative to determine, is this applicable? If so, I need to address this thing. And I saw my failure rate start, you know, at 30s to go to 40s, 50s, 60s, 70. By the time I left Textron, we were at a 90% sustainment rate 
across all industries, for uh, 35,000 employees, 32 countries, and hundreds of different initiatives a year. And we were sustaining and they were delivering strong results at a 90% rate. So it, it really pro proved to me that just taking that time before we implement a major change really, really pays the dividends. And actually we measured it as the same at Union Pacific. And when I left there, we were at a 96% sustainment rate, which mostly included union employees in the field. They, and you'll, the book, and, and I'll tell a few stories today, but includes what they were doing to increase productivity velocity, just a, a really rewarding and, and fun. <laughs> Yeah, you you can say for sure it's always really rewarding and fun. Right. I love doing right. this kind of stuff. It's just like so too. much fun, right? It is. <laughs> yeah. So in in my experience, and like you, Lynn, uh, we can say we've both been around the block many times over. I find that no two organizational change efforts are the same. There are so many factors, both in and out of our control, that are at play. And you really need to get into that. You are absolutely right. There is such a tendency out there to just treat change efforts as if they're all the same. And so we just use the same approach, but they are all different. Yeah. Unfortunately, I find that many organizations and change practitioners, uh, they get tend to get stuck on a method and then they apply it generically as a checklist while missing key things or they take shortcuts and cut out important steps that are required, or they simply tinker, or they just don't know any better and they fly by the seat of their pants. So Lynn, tell us how change questions helps reduce this risk. Yeah, you know, the thing is that I said that I met, I've read all these change initiatives and what I found, a lot of them are accompanied with studies and they will say things like, well, 16% of the time when a change initiative fails, it's because of this. Well, that may make it into somebody's change methodology or somebody's model. But if you see that 5% of the time it fails because of something else, that probably isn't going to make it into a model. So with the change questions, every as I failed, I kept pulling in anything that was relevant. And what I found is that I've got 11 questions. And so it's more bigger than the, your normal model. But in, unless you have a super complex change, you probably won't answer or address every question. And so what you end up though with is you don't overproduce a, a too complex of a change in implementation plan or underproduce a, a not complex enough. And, and you end up with kind of the Goldilocks story just right. And that's my goal. That was my goal with change questions. So Lynn, uh, in your book, you provide many vivid stories or more formally speaking, case studies of your experience at Union Pacific. And for a bit of context, Lynn, your mandate at Union Pacific was based on lean being the underlying methodology that needed to be um, instilled there. And for those of you that are not familiar with lean, uh, lean is a way of thinking about creating uh, needed value with fewer resources and less waste. Uh, lean is a practice uh, consisting of continuous experimentation to achieve perfect value with zero waste. And so we need to recognize that lean thinking and lean practice do occur together. So Lynn, there are 
11 change questions that one can pick from. Let's look into a couple of them and let's make them come alive for our listeners. So how about you pick the first one and I'll pick the second one that we'll cover. All right, no problem. Uh, let's start with the first change question, which is what is your value-driven purpose for the change? Well, that's a real great choice. In fact, that's one that I notice that if it's not properly done, which includes you know addressing the value-driven purpose up front and then refining or even pivoting as you move along, it would put the whole initiative at risk. And I can say the same thing for this particular change question, the value-driven purpose, uh, when it comes uh, to other areas such as product and service development or new innovations or modernizing business models and the like. So this is a powerful question on many, many fronts. It really is. And you probably noticed when you read it that it includes two elements. One is what is your value driven? So value and purpose. So I'm just going to take a moment about value and then we'll really key in on purpose. But we often roll out a big organizational change. I mean, <laughs> flavor of the month came because there are so many bigger organizational changes that gets rolled out. Um, and we don't often define what is exactly the value that we expect to get from the change. And the reason we do it right here at the first change question is we want to identify what we expect to get from it because later on in the change questions, we'll be trying to measure it to see if we really are getting that value that we expect. So that's a critical part of this, but also purpose is critical. And I'm, I'm, it's critical for so many reasons, but let's just talk of, of babies like toddlers. Every toddler is known for a different, like different phase. So the twos, we know the twos are the terrible twos, right? The threes, I bet you could immediately guess what the threes are. It's it's the why time. It's the time when little three-year-olds ask why approximately eight times per day, and they don't take a vacation for weekends or any time off. So they are constantly seeking to understand what they see and what they experience. And why would we think that we outgrow that when we get to the workplace? Because there now there have been studies on purpose and per role of purpose. And all the studies find that people have a need, an intrinsic internal need to understand why. Why are you asking me to do this? Why are you asking me to change? What's the purpose? And um, one, we may think that it, it, that it maybe that some ages outgrow it, but what's interesting is the millennial group, the most recent study says millennials have a stronger need than any of any of the other groups to understand why. So a value-driven purpose statement starts to give us alignment and set us on a direction. And I'm going to give you a quick example from Union Pacific. So, you know, the railroad lives and dies by velocity, right? We all love velocity. We want to keep things moving. And at Union Pacific, like most railroads, we have two main groups that work on velocity. The one are the dispatchers and the one are the, the folks in the field, the transportation folks. And we have pairs of this dispatching and transportation managers who own the corridors. But we, what we found at Union Pacific, you may think they're aligned on purpose because they both had velocity as a goal, but their velocity led up through each of their own departments. And what we found is sometimes transportation would sub-optimize dispatches velocity by making their own velocity better 
better and vice versa. And by aligning those two groups on purpose, when we started with this lean activity, and I can tell you at Union Pacific, we called it UPWay. That was the name of this change initiative. When we started doing UPWay at Union Pacific, we looked at this and we said, wait a minute, they're not aligned on purpose. They're suboptimizing each other. So we started pairing them up on that shared goal with the shared purpose and velocity immediately started to go up. And I want to tell you about one quick, wonderful story is that what was found was that the people in the field felt sometimes the speed limits were too slow. And all over the course of 150 years, maybe a track, a curve had been straightened or a bridge had been added or something's happened and nobody went back to dispatch in every single circumstance and changed the speed limit. So this this astute pair got out, they, they looked at everything and they found that they could go through their corridor and they could increase the speed dramatically. And then don't you know, of course, everybody else did it. And our velocity went, whoop. I mean, it just was like fantastic because we were aligned on purpose. You know, Lynn, there, there's certainly an art to asking questions and especially knowing why you're asking them and you know this first uh, change question um you know your value driven purpose is a really important one like you you told us so now it's my turn so i get to pick from the change questions so my pick is how will you establish a supportive management system with the appropriate leader behaviors that's a great choice go for it yeah so <laughs> so lynn what i liked in your book was your story about the leaders from the top of the company and through to the management ranks, they were so effectively supported. And I really laughed out loud when you quoted the Wicked Witch of the West. You know, <laughs> these things must be done delicately. So, so Lynn, um, would you share that story with us and make this come alive in the context of this particular change question? You picked one of the top reasons that change initiatives fail is lack of top leadership support. The two areas are communications and leadership. And those are the two top areas in it, depending on the study, you know, they flip back and forth, but leadership is critical. So the change question for that is how will you establish a supportive management system with the appropriate leadership behaviors? So management system, you may not be familiar with that term. Well, I'm sure you are, but a lot of people might not be. And think of it as the infrastructure that might be working against your change. Things like how we're measured. Like think of the, the example I gave you. Each of those uh, folks on Velocity were being measured through their own department. So that was working against the actual goal overall. So it could be how you're measured. It could be how you're promoted. It could be the org chart, all of those types of things. That's kind of what a management system is. And we need to look at that and see if there's anything that's conflicting with the change that we want to initiate. One example that I found at Union Pacific is we ended up, we were really teaching through UP way. We were teaching problem solving, proactive problem solving. Let's address these problems before they become a crisis. But you know, it feels like the railroad lives a crisis daily and we love the people that can get us out of emergencies and we love them. Those firefighters, we reward them. We love them. And we don't so much say the same thing about the people that avoid the fires, you know? So, so the whole idea is that would be another example of finding a way to not only reward the firefighters, but the people that proactive eliminate those fires from happening in the first place. But now, 
The second part of that change question is leadership behaviors. And the research doesn't just say that, you know, leader, that it fails if leadership doesn't support it. It mostly talks about visible leadership behavior so that employees get more than lip service. They can see that leaders are supportive of this change. And so what we do or what we did at Union Pacific is we did something that's called catch ball. And we went to leaders and we said, this is the change we're going to implement. It's called UPWay. It's it's like lean. The Toyota came from Toyota, but it's, you know, it's going to be for railroads. This is what it looks like. How could you show your people that you support this? What could you visibly do? And we took all that feedback back to our team. Now, keep in mind, you know, nobody wants to be told what to do. If we were to go to our leaders and say, you're going to do this, you're, yeah, right. That's, <laughs> that's something we have to do delicately. So instead we went and now they're offering up their ideas. So mentally, psychologically, they've engaged, they've engaged in visualizing themselves, supporting the change. That's a big step in terms of change behavior and internal buy-in. And then we, we, you know, kind of our team put together what all the leaders were saying. Then we went back to them individually and said, these are the things you and your peers said you could do. Which ones can you sign up for? We really want you to, to you know, we showed them the data. It will fail if you don't do this. Please choose a way that you are going to demonstrate your support. And they chose things like, you know, leadership will train their own people. We're gonna we're gonna set up meetings to review the progress of the change. We're we're gonna remove roadblocks. We're gonna coach people. I mean, they just found ways that they could engage in the change, and um, and it was really powerful. And then, you know, I just want to give you another quick story, if you don't mind, and this, this involves safety, which is near and dear to all of our hearts. You know, years ago, I remember in manufacturing, we were very rules-based, as was almost everybody doing safety in that, you know, you had a set of rules, and if people on the shop floor, or as in the railroad example, people in the field violated those rules, they would be written up. And the whole safety, in, you know, safety discipline went through a big change about switching over to behavioral-based safety, let employees have the ownership for their own safety and the safety of their peers. and But trying to change that management system, that infrastructure around the old rules-based and having employees trust you enough that they're going to start saying when they're unsafe and coaching each other, that is huge change. So we had one safety coordinator who was seeing that our safety department at Union Pacific saw we got to switch over to behavioral safety, but was having a hard time getting a lot of buy-in. And they had they had areas where they were succeeding and they were, you know, doing their their very best. But we did have one person who had been exposed to UP Way and understood some of the things that with the change questions. And she said, I wonder if I can use this with behavioral-based safety. And she started experimenting and putting those things in place with the people she was she was responsible for. And by by year the third year, they they that department itself saw a fifty percent reduction in their injury rate, and a couple of years later, another fifty percent reduction. And I mean, there were there were sparks like that happening on all over the railroad. But the point is that it's all about looking at that management system, removing the roadblocks, and having leaders be active and involved in demonstrating the changes that need to be made. And and what I like about um, how you described it in the book is how the leaders were really supported. Now you're saying let's remove the roadblocks, but the way in which the leaders were very effectively and um, constructively supported, it was um, something that uh, was really powerful. 
that um, yeah. was done there. And, you know, this particular question, right, um, it's an important one, uh, this particular change question, right, on the management system and um, the leadership behaviors. Um, it's an important one for leaders uh, to really take to heart, especially now at this time, uh, we are stepping into a new era of leadership in the context um, of artificial intelligence and decisioning. So, you know, things are even changing how we lead, right? And so yeah. uh, this yeah. mechanism that's in place, but, you know, prompted by this change question, I believe is um, very uh, powerful and effective and it's important. So moving on, uh, Lynn, uh, one of the techniques uh, that you describe in your book uh, is how you use what is called the 20-60-20 rule. And that's something that I also find very effective and it's never let me down. I agree. I love it's my favorite one. <laughs> it's one of my favorite parts of the whole book. Um, and and I stumbled over it. I, I I'll give you a little background again. Another failure. You wonder how I kept my job, probably. But um, <laughs> I I had been implementing change pretty successfully and had a lot of the change questions developed. And for you know complex changes like a, a supplier portal for all all suppliers across all of Textron, um, you know, it, it was was using change questions for all those bigger changes and it was really working well. Um, but I had one change that I had to roll out and I had thought it, you know, it was going to be easy. It was with a small group of people, granted probably 10 different countries, but not a big group of people. I had worked with a lot of them forever. I felt they trusted me. I'd kind of pre-warned them, hey, this change is coming. You know, this is this is kind of the deal. But I didn't do the change questions. I didn't. If I would have looked through them, I probably would have picked three of them and it probably would have succeeded. But I ended up thinking, oh, I know this group. I'm just sending out the email effective next week. And I got slammed. I mean, really big time slammed. Uh, and um, and in fact, a couple of business units said, we're not doing that. I'm like, what? what? Are you kidding me? I report to the CEO. Really? You're not doing it? <laughs> and, uh, and I realized then in trying to figure out why why was it just so out of proportion to what I expected? I stumbled across the change curve. And um, it basically it says that no matter what change it is, 20% of the people will be open. They're the, they're the change agents, the early adopters. 60% will be neutral. They're just going to wait around. They're not going to take a strong stance. And then 20% will resist. And you know, if you just roll something out without any preparation, you know, the, there there are a lot of problems with that, which is what I did. You're going to have the resistors really have a loud voice in trying to dissuade people from, from making the change. And and yet I also found you could use that curve to your advantage. So that was a that was a big aha for me. And that that formed the basis of a lot of my learnings, new learnings at that point. And Lynn, in your book, I really like how you make um, things come to life with your case examples um, at Union Pacific. And Lynn, so how about you share with us how you use the 20-60-20 rule for selecting the most appropriate candidate for running the test pilots, or as in your book, you call that the learning trials? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, think about most of the changes we've experienced, right? You get, you, maybe you get a notice from leadership on X date, we're going to roll this out. And then 
you know, that, and then three weeks later, it gets rolled out to everyone at the same time. And like, you know, like that whole peanut butter spread. And then think about that, the neutral group, right? They're the ones you want. You've got to get a tipping point. You've got to get some momentum. But the people with the loudest voice, which is what I experienced, are the negative people. And they will, or, and I hate to label them because sometimes, you know, they've just been given so many changes, they're burnt out, right? But people who maybe will resist it, they're going to pull that neutral over to in the wrong direction. So you you got to give momentum in the positive direction. So what I what I always do, and I did at Union Pacific, and we talked extensively how, but in, in almost every situation, I try to get some type of a pilot, uh, an experiment, a simulation, if I can't really do it, and I choose change agents because they, they're going to want to change. And you choose them and you say, partner with me. We're going to get the bugs out because you're going to give the, the resistors a lot of negative fodder to, in, to uh, influence the, the neutrals if you have bugs when you roll out your change. And we've all experienced change where things don't work and it's not like they said it was going to be. So, so anyway. So what, so what you do then is you get this pilot and you, you may, and you, and you get with the change agent. And then one of the other change questions is how am I going to recognize success? So even if you get a little spark of success, you immediately glom onto it and you have the CEO talk about it and you put it in a podcast and you put it out on the website and suddenly <laughs> everybody is listening and the neutrals are going, well, we want that. We want that. Mm -hmm. And again, psychologically, nobody wants to be told what to do. But if they go, well, how come they get that? And we don't. It's like FOMO, fear, fear of missing out. They want to get what they've got. And so that really does transform a change. And, um, and I strongly, strongly recommend that for anybody implementing wide scale organizational change. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and there are so many ways that you can uh, implement the 20-60-20 rule throughout the different phases of the um, initiative. And you'll um, pick from different categories depending on what you're trying to do. So it's not you're always picking on the change agents. You'll pick on um, some of the others as well. And, Good you know, point. that's um, really nicely laid out in the book. So, Lynn? You mentioned that uh, you often tell executives that this change questions approach is slower, but it gives better results. In my experience, I find that there's the illusion or perception that this approach, which is, you know, then coupled with underlying proven methodologies and in unit Pacific case, it was lean, right? So the yeah. perception or the illusion is that it's slower, yet it's less risky, but, and according to my data, it actually delivers um, breakthrough results significantly faster. So what I find is that people seem to get really uncomfortable in the fuzzy front end, and they want to prematurely jump to solutions, which is a later stage that would be more well-defined. So they think, they perceive the approach is slow. And yet you want to address the right problem with the right solution. So Lynn, how about you share with us the results that you achieved at Union Pacific using the change questions, this apparently, quote unquote, slower approach. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you know what? I love that you expanded on that and, and you made a lot of really good points. Um, 
okay, this is my last failure I'm going to talk about this time. Uh, I was rolling out a change, not at Union Pacific, but at Textron. And the implementation plan was a typical one that it's all time-based. In other words, you know, you've got to train this level of people by this date. You have to train this level by this date, this level by this date. And because it was such a big change across so many different countries, I thought, okay, I got to do this. And then it didn't it didn't deliver the the um, results that we wanted it to deliver. And right then, I stumbled across a Harvard Business Review article. This is the early two thousands on strategic speed versus operational speed. And you had asked for results, and I'll give you their results, and then I'll tell you Union Pacific's results. So. It was a really good article, and it talked about how they the researchers studied a lot of companies, I think 300 and something globally, that were all implementing organizational change. And they found that there were two different methods. The one that I described, where they called operational speed, where it's all timeline-based. Everybody has to do X by X date. The other one was called strategic speed. And that was that our implementation plan has little pauses where that we check and make sure we're delivering value. And remember that first change question is, what is your value-driven purpose? So we define value in the change questions early on, but then we build in checking to see, okay, we know they were trained. Are they using it? Well, are they using it? Is it delivering results? You know what I mean? You're checking, what's the value we want to get? We want to improve customer set. Well, then is it is it improving customer set? You know what I mean? You get to the value you expect. And if it's not delivering value, you got to tweak it. You got to, you got to change it. You got to make sure that it's working. So these the ones that used that strategic speed that I just described, uh, five year, I think it was five years later, had a 52% better result than the ones that used operational speed. So to your point, sometimes the you called it the fuzzy front end. I love that. I'm used to the fuzzy middle, the fun, fuzzy front end. Um, you know, it could be a little bit of stop and go, but ultimately the results are just great. Plus, why put a lot of energy into a timeline-based implementation plan that doesn't sustain? Like, it's it's worse than not doing anything because you leave people that are burned out at the end of it. And that's when we get the flavor of the month discussion. But I just want to briefly describe the um, the panel survey we put in at Union Pacific. We, we had a lot of quick and easy ways to check if it was succeeding, but we thought um, we're going to steal an idea from the medical field where they do longitudinal studies. And we randomly selected 400 people, um, which at 350 would represent our, our whole organization statistically, but we took 400, we, we stratified sampled, which meant that say 5% of our whole population in operating our conductors on the Northern region. So 5% of our sample, our conductors, they were primarily union members. We reached out, we said, hey, we're doing this new initiative over the next four years. Will you sign up that we could interview you or we can send you a survey every six months, take it 10, 15 minutes. Nobody will know but one person who you are and your results will always be anonymous and you can mail them in. You can go on a website if you, if you, however way you want us to complete your survey, but we want to gather this data. We did that because if we would have done the whole population, we would have gotten maybe a 10 to 12% response rate can't make inferences with that. So we were able to get over an 85% response rate over those four years. And we were asking them questions about the UPA. And we could see 
it's spreading. We could see where it was working, where it wasn't working, where leaders supported it, where they didn't, where where they where their processes they said their processes had improved, where they didn't. And then by year three, we were able to correlate that with our top level KPIs because we saw all of these great successes, but it's really hard to get to the top level because there's a lot of noise and a lot of other factors. But we could see that the top five area service units or department service units who were doing UPA the best were the top five in terms of operating results, in terms of KPIs, and the lowest five were the lowest. And we could see statistically all of their metrics were better than the other ones. And, and we had a little spot check. We had one service unit that's always been in the bottom and they saw this and they said, you know, service service unit leaders came and went, couldn't get up there. Within six months, they asked us, come, please help us, please help us. We came out in six months, they went to the top of the KPI list. I mean, it it worked. So in terms of operating results, it worked. The change questions helped sustain and helped us course correct, but then the UP way was the actual thing that was making the difference. So it was it was really, it was really rewarding to see that. Yeah. Well, Lynn, that's a really great testament. And um, I find that depending on the starting capability of the organization, I find that sustained improvement ranges can be between 20% to 80%. That's huge, right? Yeah, yeah. And again, if the approach is done properly, and especially for the more, more complex changes, uh, it does require having some experienced leaders and practitioners on the team, whether they're outsourced or insourced, and both having um, academic theory and deep practical experience and with a proven track record as well. Absolutely. And, you know, you just can't forget it. Change is really hard, and it's really not for the faint of heart. Lynn and Sonia, I really enjoyed uh, listening to this exchange. How about some final <laughs> comments? Uh, Lynn, uh, you go first, please. I just, I just think you can have the best solution, the best change initiative, the best anything, if it doesn't sustain. It's, it's just not worth it. It's not we're doing. You have to do the upfront planning no matter what change methodology you do, you have to do something so that we can sustain these changes that we're rolling out to our people throughout throughout our industries. Sonia, your final thoughts. Well, I often see reports that when undergoing under organizational change, things get worse before they get better. And I know that happens. Yet I'm adamant that it doesn't need to be that way. And I can personally attest to that. So one of the principles that's been drilled into me uh, during my formative years is do no harm, do good. And so there are ways of going through organizational change, transformations, um, and turnarounds of sorts. And the trajectory pushes forward to getting better, step by step, getting better, and no worsening in between. And the change uh, questions approach is one that will help reduce this risk so that you do no harm, you do good, step by step as you go along with no worsening in between. Again, the change questions really, really help reduce this risk and get us to achieving the high level of success rates and not um, you know, what's typical in terms of all the um, failures of uh, change initiatives. It puts us on the other side of the curve. Well, thanks very much. The Change Questions book is available in print uh, on Kindle and audiobook at 
Amazon.com. I think we all know uh, Amazon, right? Uh, you can download the free digital workbook at changequestions.net. And you can also contact Lynn at changequestions.net or through her LinkedIn account. So Lynn Kelly and Sonia Bott, like to thank you very much um, for this this discussion. And uh, Lynn, I have to say, I'm really impressed that, that you know you were able to drive some change at uh, at Union Pacific, which, uh, as railroads go, you know it's 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 big and it's it's kind of like. Uh, trying to turn an ocean liner around. It's not easy, uh, but but you <laughs> were able you. to accomplish some good things, especially with, uh, you know, the all important uh, velocity. Uh, you, you're right, the railroads live and die by, by velocity. Yeah. yeah. So again, uh, thanks very much. It's been a pleasure. Best to both of you and have a safe day. Thank you, Bill. Thank you.